You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, church family. Happy New Year, everybody. Come on. Good to see you this morning. If uh, you are a guest with us here, welcome. My name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here. I'm grateful you're with us. I'm gonna tell you this is a special group that's gathered here this morning. Any group that's gonna gather at 9 a.m. on New Year's Day, right after New Year's Eve, this is God's elect right here. This is who we're gonna plant the next church out of right here. Um, Next to those that gather during a Dallas Cowboys playoff game, this this is a close second right here. So glad you're with us. Um, If you got a Bible with you, I'd love for you to open to Psalm 98. We're gonna do a brief reflection there. Uh, here in just a moment, Psalm 98. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback one underneath the seat somewhere in front of you. That's our gift to you. Take that home with you. But happy new year. Grateful you're with us. Uh, Today is a a special day in many ways. One, it's not just the start of a new calendar year for uh, our world, which it is, uh, but uh, for the church today, we actually find ourselves also in a new season Uh, in the historic church calendar. If you uh, are not steeped in high church or historic church uh, liturgies or whatever it may be, as I wasn't growing up, um, then you may not know that the church for centuries, the church universal uh, across the world, uh, has kind of held to its own internal calendar to help not just mark cultural holidays and cultural moments, but an internal calendar based on the scriptures to mark milestones and moments uh, of the historic Christian faith that draws our hearts closer to Jesus. And we just finished one of those seasons, which is called Advent. It's the four Sundays leading up to Christmas uh, in which we reflect on the first Advent, the first coming is what that word means, uh, first arrival of our Messiah, Jesus Christ, and all that was entailed in his birth there in Bethlehem. And Um, Starting on January 6th, there's another season called Epiphany, which is a season that runs from January 6th all the way to Ash Wednesday, almost up to Easter, uh, that is meant to uh, meditate upon the manifestation of Christ into the world, his ministry, his revealing of himself in the world um, that would lead all the way up to his purpose and coming, which was his crucifixion. But in between... Um, Advent that ends on Christmas Eve and an epiphany that starts January 6th, there is this other little window of 12 days that you may know as the 12 days of Christmas. And no, as much as we want it to be, it's not about originally uh, finding our true love and giving them two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. The 12 days between Christmas and January 6th is known as Christmas Tide. And uh, it's actually meant to serve as an extension of Christmas's ultimate hope, which uh, came through Christ's birth, which is ultimately um, the implications of the salvation that Jesus has come to bring, that we're meant to extend that past Christmas even 12 more days so that we can come and behold him and what he has brought for us in our salvation. That being said, We've extended this Advent sermon series that we began uh, several weeks ago beyond Christmas. And uh, this sermon series, worthy of our songs, we took classic Christmas hymns and we're looking at kind of their historic origins, their biblical meaning and why they are worthy of our 
singing. And the hymn that we're going to look at this week, this New Year's Day, this Lord's Day, uh, is the one that we just sang not long ago, Joy to the World. And as Connor even mentioned, it might surprise you to know that Joy to the World, as popular as that is as a Christmas song, it was actually never written to be a Christmas song. It was written ultimately about the Lord's second coming when the Messiah will return to earth, when he will overthrow all injustice finally, when he will make all things new and the ultimate implications of what Christ secured on the cross will be ours in its full consummation when he returns. That's what that song is ultimately about. And so we're gonna use that song and the text that inspired it to point our affections forward now, not just to a new calendar year, but the ultimate hope that is coming for us in Christ's return. Now, that song, Joy to the World, I don't know if you know much history behind that song, it's fascinating. Uh, A pastor from England by the name of Isaac Watts wrote this as a poem in 1719. And this brother, Isaac Watts, sharp cat. Like some of y'all think you're cool, you're not Isaac Watts cool. By the age of four, he already knew Latin. By the age of nine, he knew Greek. By the age of 11, he knew French. By the age of 13, he knew Hebrew. Anybody got that? For your kids, Sumlin girls, where you at? What's going on? This guy was a sharp cat, yet this brother was so humble. As smart as he was as a young child growing up, He was so humble because his simple desire was simply just to teach God's word and to shepherd a local congregation. That's all he wanted to do. Watts wrote a lot of hymns in his lifetime, but he said that he was so always dissatisfied with the singing of those hymns that he had written and that others had written in his congregation because of how bored people looked when they sang them. (laughs) This is how every worship pastor feels uh, when leading. Um, But he he said they looked so bored singing these, these songs about the eternal work of the Savior to save us from our sins and to give us new life. And yet how bored we looked while we sang. And that's how he felt about his congregation. He wrote these words, listen to this. To see the dull indifference the negligent and thoughtless air that sits upon the faces of a whole assembly while the psalm is upon their lips might even tempt a charitable observer to conclude with suspicion the fervency of their inward religion. In other words, when I look at their faces singing, the eternal content of the biblical Psalms and all that's within them, it looks like God's people don't even believe what they're singing. That's what Isaac Watts felt about a pastor leading his congregation. And so what he did is he set out, he wrote a lot of hymns in his lifetime. He set out to write a poem that is reflecting upon every Psalm of the Bible, all 150 Psalms. He wrote a poem meditating upon each one of those. And as he was doing so, thinking about 
how none of his congregation want to sing any of these with joy, he came across Psalm 98. And I would just wanna read, I want us to read through Psalm 98 in its entirety here, it's only nine verses, and, and hear what's in this text that captured Isaac Watts' heart and attention. Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it and the world and all who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. Why? Because he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. So Isaac Watts sees what's in this psalm and he writes a poem to reflect upon it. A couple quick observations I just wanna make about Psalm 98, just so we're clear. Number one, nowhere in this Psalm is Christmas explicitly in view. It's there, but it includes Christmas. It's as if the Psalmist is looking at Christmas, but through Christmas to the ultimate redemptive work of the Lord that yes, would come in his first advent, his first coming, but look through Christmas to the very end of the age when the Messiah will return once again and establish his rule upon the earth, when salvation will be made complete, when all the promises of the covenants are fulfilled, when complete judgment of the wicked will take place and God's perfect righteousness will be on display forevermore. You see, in Old Testament prophecy, when they looked at the, the future work of the Messiah who was promised, they couldn't see the two advents. They looked, they were infused as one. Christ's work to save us on the cross and Christ's second coming to judge the wicked and make all things new those were always seem like they're put together uh, in the Old Testament. And that's why when they're looking at it, they thought it all happened at once. Jews today are thinking the Messiah still hasn't come yet because they can't see it. And you've heard it before, it's like two mountain ranges. When you're looking at them, they look like it's one, but as you get closer, you realize they're further apart, there's two peaks. And that's how this was. So Christmas isn't explicitly in view here, it's included, but it's looking all the way to the very end of the age, looking at Messiah's final return. And it's after the psalmist says, bust out the band. Like, let's get our, our praise on because look what our God has done. 
Look at the salvation that is ours in the fulfillment of the Messiah. Secondly, though, tucked within that is the psalmist is now calling not just Jews, not just Israel, not just the Middle East, but all of the nations, all of the peoples of the earth, the entirety of the planet to rejoice over it. Rejoice what our God has done. He's fixed the problem of man's brokenness, of the sin that has entered into our world and corrupted everything, including our human hearts. And he's fixed it by providing a savior who would first save us from our sins and then would come to make all things new. And so bust out the band, yes, but for all the earth, not, and not even just humanity. Notice within this Psalm, even the physical earth is to rejoice. The rocks, the hills, the rivers, the oceans are all to rejoice with the utmost joy and worship that the Lord has come to make all things new. And so Watts, meditating upon this Psalm, writes an adaptive poem to reflect upon it, simply entitled, joy to the world, the Lord has come. And hopes that this song could be sung possibly without boredom. That this song could be sung for the deepest recesses of joy of that future grace that has been secured for us right now. And that's what he intended for, to sing it with the utmost exaltation there's four verses in this psalm. We're gonna sing them again in a moment, but I want you to just hear what's tucked within these. Verse one, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let the earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and heaven and nature sing. The opening verse is an invitation for preparation. Many consider it a play off Christ's first advent as described in Luke 2, 7, where there wasn't room for him in the inn. And Watts is meditating, may it not be so when he returns at his second advent. May the whole earth have nothing else crowding up our hearts when our Messiah returns, but that of simply the joy of his coming. And then the second verse, joy to the earth, the savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods and rocks and hills and plains repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy, repeat, repeat the sounding joy. Romans eight even tells us that right now under the effects of sin's curse, even the creation around us, the physical earth is groaning for its day of redemption. You think the earth and all the earthquakes and tornadoes and storms and diseases and pandemics aren't crying out for their redemption? Romans 8 says they are. They are rejoicing for that day when Jesus said in Matthew 19, when this broken earth will be regenerated. And so if the rocks are willing to cry out how much more should the songs of humanity be filled with this immeasurable joy at our redemption that's coming? 
And then the third verse, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. There is a day coming when the effects of the curse that we have been living under since Genesis 3 will be a distant memory. There won't even be a hint of it anymore. A day that Jesus proclaimed in Revelation 21, behold, I'm making all things new. Y'all, imagine there is a day coming when you're gonna run naked through Texas summers without even one mosquito bite because the curse has been lifted. Glory, glory in that day. And then verse four, he rules the world with truth and grace. He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love, the wonders of his love, the wonders of wonders of his love. That day when no longer will corrupt government be ruling the world, where lying and deceit and cover-ups and injustices are the norm, No, a day that God promised in Ezekiel 36, and I quote, when I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, in that day, the nations will know that I am the Lord when I prove myself holy to them. And as Psalm 17 declares, in that day, oh, the wonders of his love they will be. Notice how both the psalmist and Watts in this future grace, they put it in present tense. Watts wanted you to feel that future grace right now. As if we were transported in time from the manger scene in Bethlehem to the cross and the empty tomb in Jerusalem all the way to the very end of Last day when Christ returns to make all things new so that we can know the joy that we'll have on that day has actually been secured for us right now. It's ours now. It's an already just but not yet. Watts wrote this poem, by the way, in a meter that was meant to be sung loud and was meant to be sung joyously. The problem was none of the congregations in that day wanted to sing this hymn that way. They preferred to sing dirges like they were at a funeral. And so this hymn written in 1719 never took off. It lay dormant for about a hundred years until 1836 in Boston that a banker by day and a composer by night a man by the name of Lowell Mason. He wrote an, a new arrangement to it entitled Antioch, inspired by Handel's Messiah. And he joined it with Isaac Watts' poem and gave it the joy-matching tempo that we sing it in today that invokes the emotion that Watts so deeply desired in his congregation and that is so joyously demanded from the text so I want to invite Connor and Allie to come back up here. We're going to sing this again because I don't think that we got it right the first time. 
Church family, I want you to know this. As we gather here today, we're not just on the precipice of a new year. We gather here today on the foundation of a secured hope and a secure joy. I don't know what new joys you're looking for in 2023, but I'm gonna just gonna tell you right now, a digit change on a human calendar can't secure it for you. I don't know whether you're looking for a new job in 2023, you're looking for a, a new body in 2023, you're looking for a new mate in 2023, new vacation, new paycheck, whatever it may be, I'm just gonna tell you right now, biblically speaking and experientially speaking, none of those things can satisfy the deepest longings of joy that your soul was created for. It will not satisfy. You will find yourself next New Year's asking either for the same things or something else to replace it once you got it. But I can tell you, that the eternal joy that your soul was made for, that you are longing for right now, it can only be found in Jesus Christ. The one who has come the first time to live the righteous life that you and I fail to live, who came to die on a cross to satisfy the just wrath that we deserve for our sin, to make blood payment for our sins so that we could be forgiven. This Jesus Christ who rose from the grave three days later so that you and I by faith in his work can receive new resurrected life in him who is now seated at the right hand of the father on the throne on high ruling and reigning over the nations right now in the specific work of gathering a body to himself, a church, a bride who has placed their faith in him, a new humanity this Jesus Christ who promises that one day he will return. He will eradicate not just the power and the penalty of sin, which he's already conquered through the cross, but one day he will eradicate the very presence of sin. He will actually overthrow all injustice. He will regenerate the earth. He will make all things new. That joy cannot even be compared to anything else that our human hearts simply wanna settle for. And so this New Year's, with this future grace in mind, let us look to that joy. And let us now, church, stand, if you would, and let's sing this, not as a funeral dirge. I know we're tired. I know you stayed up late, eating, partying came way too early this 9 a.m. service. I argued for 10.30, I got overthrown. <laughs> but with all that joy in mind, church, let's sing from the deepest recesses of our soul, loud and joyously about the joy in Jesus Christ that has come to the world and will come to the world. Amen? Let's sing about that now. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.